Welcome to the Exposing Pseudo-Astronomy podcast for another example of astronomy and astronomy-related misconceptions, mistakes, half-truths, and conspiracies. My name is Stuart Robbins, and this is episode 89 for the 2nd 3rd of October 2013. Today I'm bringing you an interview with Robin Knupp, a leading researcher in lunar formation. Robin Knupp is the Associate Vice President of the Planetary Science Directorate at the Southwest Research Institute in Boulder, Colorado. She received her B.S. in Physics from Duke University and her Ph.D. in Planetary Sciences from the University of Colorado. And Robin has been at the forefront for over a decade in simulating how the moon may have formed. With that in mind, welcome to the podcast, Dr. Knupp. Thank you. It's good to be here. Thanks for, uh, for agreeing to sit down for a bit to discuss lunar formation. And to set the stage for this, could you give a brief summary of different lunar formation models? Sure. There are a couple uh, categories of models for how the moon formed. There's one known as capture. And the idea here is that the moon formed as a separate object and then through uh, some type of energy loss, as it passed close to the Earth, it was captured into a bound orbit around the Earth. Uh, there's another theory called fission, and that theory uh, proposes that the Earth was spinning so rapidly that it became rotationally unstable, and essentially the material uh, that formed the Moon was expelled from the uh, equatorial region of the planet because it was rotating so quickly. Mm-hmm. So that's known as the fission model. And then uh, the other and the leading model is known as the giant impact theory. And so in this model, the Earth was struck by another large planet-sized object at essentially the end of the Earth's formation. And this collision ejects material into orbit around the Earth. That material forms a disk, and the Moon accumulates from that disk. Now, uh, the capture and the fission models for the origin of the Moon... Uh, are today much less favored than the giant impact model uh, because they seem to be very improbable and they have a hard time explaining some of the main characteristics of the moon. For example, the moon lacks a, a large iron core. It has only a very small iron core compared to the Earth, for example. And if it had been an independent planet that formed apart from the Earth and was captured into orbit around the Earth, uh, then there's not really a good explanation for why the Moon wouldn't have a large core like the Earth does. And in the case of the fission model, um, it's not clear uh, why the Earth would be rotating so quickly before, uh, before the Moon forms, with the one exception that you can get a fast rotating Earth if you hit the Earth uh, by a large impactor. Uh, which then is essentially the impact model for forming the moon. So that's an exam- those are examples of different impact uh, or different lunar origin theories. And among those, uh, really since the mid-1980s, uh, the impact origin for the uh, formation of the moon has been by far the uh, leading theory. Uh, so you just mentioned two reasons why uh, we don't like uh, some of the other models, where it's very improbable for those types of initial conditions to be met. What about how people have argued that it's very improbable for a giant, um, I think the the number is a Mars-sized object, would have hit Earth so early on? 
Um, this seems, you know, planets colliding seems almost the thing of science fiction. Well, when the impact model for the moon's origin was first proposed, it was seen as, uh, to be honest, kind of a crazy idea. Uh, at the time, the idea that uh, Earth had collided with another planet-sized object was seen as uh, uh, rather fantastic. Mm -hmm. <laughs> but it turns out that uh, models of how the inner planets, the solid planets in our solar system form, now show, and they have for decades, that in order to build a planet as large as the Earth, you naturally pass through a final stage of assembly in which these planet-sized objects are colliding with one another. So the picture is that before the planets were finished growing, there might have been many tens or perhaps a hundred mini planets in the inner region of the solar system where we now find uh, the four inner planets. And it was collisions between those mini planets that over time reduced their numbers and eventually gave us the stable set of planets we have. So the models of how the planets form now tell us that these impacts, these large impacts, would have been a natural consequence of forming the inner planets. And once, uh, once those origin models suggested this, then people started to rethink uh, the implications for the impact theory for the moon. And in fact, it was at a 1984 conference on lunar origin where scientists gathered and uh, looked at these new planet formation results and came to the conclusion that the impact model seemed not only uh, preferable to the capture and fission models, but it seemed like these events would even be probable. So it's almost like it, it really, well not almost, it is pretty much like you have a model proposed that seems crazy and we don't understand how it could have actually happened, but then as a an almost separate field of planetary science advanced that the consequences of those advancements make the model that seemed unlikely for the moon's formation actually much more likely. Exactly. Okay. You've explained that there are that the big splash model is uh, as some people like to call it or the collision or impact model is yeah. um is more favored today that it explains things you you listed a few and if listeners want to go back to an earlier podcast i did um i listed um many uh, different observations that the collision model can explain much more or much better than the other models but what are some of the things that this model can't explain so for example there seems to be a lot of simulations that have difficulty reproducing some of the elemental similarities or even differences between the Earth and the Moon. So that's certainly true. The, the impact model does um, traditionally a very good job of explaining the dynamical state of the system. And by dynamical, I mean the masses of the Earth and the Moon. Uh, it provides a natural way to explain the Moon's depletion in iron because the impact tends to eject primarily material from the mantles of the colliding objects and the mm -hmm. cores where the iron is tends to merge in the earth so it naturally explains an iron depleted moon and it can explain the initial spin rate of the earth our current 24-hour day um, and the current position of the moon implies that when the moon formed uh, when it was much closer to the earth uh, the earth would have been rotating with about a five-hour day and so a big impact gives you a natural way to explain that rotation rate. So those are the basic 
and primary successes of the impact model. However, there are some interesting failures of the impact model or, uh, uh, or at least substantial challenges to the impact model. So essentially when, when this planet-sized object hits the Earth, it's an, it's an off-center collision. And you need, you need an off-center collision to start the Earth spinning and to give it the right spin. And the material is placed into orbit around the Earth primarily through gravitational interactions among the, the uh, material in the impacting object as it's destroyed during this collision. What this means is that the disk of material that's placed into orbit around the Earth turns out to originate overwhelmingly from material that came from the impacting planet versus the Earth. Now, once that material goes into the disk, it's then the material in the disk that would later accumulate into the Moon. And yet, interestingly, the Moon and the Earth have a number of extreme compositional similarities. If you look at the mantle of the Earth and all of the Moon rocks, they have essentially an identical oxygen isotope composition that is very different from the oxygen isotope composition of Mars, for example. So producing a moon in the Earth, producing a moon in the Earth um, from this impact that had the same oxygen composition would be consistent with the impact model if the impactor itself had had the same oxygen composition as the target. And that's because the disk forms primarily from the impactor, and the moon forms from the disk. Mm-hmm. And for uh, several decades, we thought that it might not be uh, unreasonable that the impactor did have the same oxygen composition as the Earth if it formed in a close orbit to the Earth from the same local uh, mix of material. But there was a paper by Pollavon and Stevenson in 2007 uh, that quantitatively analyzed this assumption. And what they showed was that Given how different Mars is in terms of its oxygen composition compared to the Earth and the Moon, and if you look at the difference between the Earth and the Moon and the difference between Mars and the Earth and the Moon in terms of this composition, the difference between Mars is 60 times greater Hmm. than the difference between the Earth and the Moon. So it's much different than the Earth and the Moon. And yet it's a planet that's only 0.5 AU away. Mm-hmm. So what, Paul, what Pollan and Stevenson did was they analyzed the results of terrestrial accretion simulations, and they showed that a typical impactor hitting a target would have a composition very different from that of the target if you require the model to produce a planet at Mars's distance that is as different from the Earth and Moon as Mars is today. So once you make that assumption that you need to explain Mars, then following from that, you find that the impactor would have had a very different oxygen composition from the Earth. So then that's a problem for the impact theory, uh, because the vast majority of the impact models produce a disk that comes from the impactor, and that disk would have had a different oxygen composition than the Earth. So there have been a couple uh, potential solutions to this uh, proposed, and um, I'll describe these briefly, but I'll also say that these, these are also uh, very much the focus of current work. This is, what, this is what people are working on right now. It's what they're trying to um, uh, assess uh, 
how effective these solutions are and what their probabilities are. Okay. And, and how so, ad hoc are they? Because, um, so, I mean, this podcast uh, is a lot about critical thinking and skepticism and analyzing some, some really crazy types of claims, but we also sort of try to look at how mainstream science will have an idea and really like that idea and then try to prop it up if it seems to fail. So I'm curious, um, as you go through these, how much you think that it's uh, almost a special pleading or if it's really just more of a, the base model is still incredibly, probably correct and these are just tiny tweaks on top of it in order to try to get it to match the observational data? Or is it really to the point where the model really kind of needs to be gutted and started from scratch? Well, I would say that um, what we know from several decades of um, simulations of these large impacts is that they are incredibly efficient at making moons. Okay. Essentially, almost any collision in this final stage of planet growth that leads to the growth of the planet also makes a moon. So we now are fairly convinced that the planets would have had moons the whole time they were growing. Hmm. And in addition, as I mentioned, the other, uh, the other theories for how the moon was formed are uh, face much more fundamental problems, at least currently, mm-hmm. than the impact mm-hmm. model. So I started by listing a few of the successes of the impact model. Uh, before we start talking about some of the challenges uh, right. that it, it hasn't been as um, obvious to solve. But, but the competing ideas, we don't even have that initial list of successes. Okay. So that's why the impact model is still seen um, as the model to try to get to work. Uh, for one thing, if the moon didn't form from an impact, we'd have to argue about what happened to all those moons that we know would have formed by impacts because the process is so efficient at forming moons. So it's still very much thought that the general idea that the moon formed from an impact is right. Okay. But, you know, it seems like we're, mis- it seems like we're missing something. Okay, so then so, uh, you said that there are a couple different ideas on how to explain the oxygen isotope issues. Yes. Uh, so what are some of those? So, uh, one idea is that um, while the disk forms from the impactor initially, it's, it's true for an impact of this scale that both the disk and the Earth are highly vaporized by this impact. And by vaporized, I mean that rock has actually been vaporized. Mm-hmm. So the idea is that there could have been... Uh, diffusive mixing between the vapor portion of the disk and the Earth's vapor portion that occurred after the disk was formed, but before the moon accumulated. So what would this do? So if you had effective uh, mixing between uh, the vapor portions of the disk and the planet, then the composition of the Earth could effectively contaminate the composition of the disk before the moon forms. And if this happened, then the moon would form with a composition equal to that of the Earth, even though the original disk formed from the impact was more contaminated by impactor material. So this idea is known as 
equilibration because essentially um, this diffusive mixing processes would la allow the compositions of the earth and the disk to equilibrate. So one possible solution is that the impact produced a disk that was compositionally different initially, but that it acquired the composition of the earth after the impact. Hmm. So the second set of solutions is based on a recent result. Before this result, we had always assumed that the impact had to leave the Earth with about a five-hour day. And that's for consistency with the current position of the Moon and our current 24-hour day. Okay. So this was a, seen as a very hard constraint on the impact, and it, it limited the sizes of the impactors and the impact speeds that we could consider as Moon-forming candidates. But there was a paper by Chuck and Stewart in 2012, and they argued that there's a, a specific gravitational interaction between the moon and the sun that could have occurred right after the moon uh, formed that could have actually slowed the Earth's rotation by a factor of two or more. So this, this interaction is called a gravitational resonance, mm -hmm. and it occurs when the 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 rate of precession or turning of the moon's elliptical orbit when the period of that of how the orbit uh, slowly precesses with time is equal to uh, the orbit of the earth around the sun and this resonance uh, Chuck and Stewart showed was capable of taking an earth with a two and a half hour day and slowing it down to five hours within say the first tens of thousands of years of the moon's life so this was an incredibly important result because it implied that if you could slow down the Earth's spin by that mechanism, then you could start with a faster spin after the impact. And that in turn opened up a whole new class of impacts that would leave the Earth with much faster spins that could potentially be moon-forming candidates. So it effectively gives you a, br a wider parameter space for your initial impact and makes it more likely. Exactly. And in particular, it allows you to consider either much larger impactors or much higher uh, speed impacts. So with that suggestion, two new impact models were proposed, uh, one by myself and the other by Chuck and Stewart. Um, the one Chuck and Stewart proposed is, um, in some sense, reminiscent of the fission model. In their model, they have the Earth rotating with about a two or two and a half hour day before the moon forming collision, and a small high velocity uh, impactor comes in and, like a bullet, hits this already rapidly rotating Earth, which then ejects material from the target Earth into the disk. So, this type of impact can make a disk with the same composition of the Earth. In the scenario I proposed, um, the collision involves two objects that each are very similar in size and have about half the Earth's mass. And in this case, the impact is almost symmetric. So in other words, if you, if you consider the extreme case of an impactor and a target that were identical in every way, mm -hmm. and they collided, then as the, as the impact proceeds, just by symmetry in the end, the planet that forms will be composed of half impactor and half target, and the disk that forms will be composed of half impactor and half target, 
so that the final disk and the planet have essentially equal compositions. Now, you don't ever get a perfectly symmetric impact in mm. practice, but what I showed is that even if the impact isn't quite perfectly symmetric, you can still get an essentially identical compositional match between the disk and the planet. So with these new models, we now have impact scenarios that can give you a disk with the same composition as the Earth's mantle. And so this provides a direct solution for the, or a direct explanation for the oxygen isotope similarity between the Earth and the Moon without resorting to that equilibration process that I described earlier. So these models describe the compositional match beautifully. But they both leave the Earth rotating with a two and a half hour day instead of the five hour day that's consistent with our current 24 hour day. So both of these new models require that just after the Moon formed, this so-called evection resonance with the Sun slow down the rotation rate of the Earth by a factor of two. And the reason why this is such an active area of work right now is that other workers that are looking at this evection resonance are arguing that they don't think that it will be capable of slowing the Earth's rotation by this much. So the, the current situation is we have a class of models that describe the dynamical state of the Earth-Moon system really well. They give us the right spin rate for the Earth, but they're not consistent with the oxygen isotope uh, match compositionally between the Earth and Moon. Then we have a separate set of models right now that give us the compositional match perfectly. But they predict a rotation rate that's a factor of two or more too rapid, and they require uh, this evection resonance. So what we lack is a single impact model that could both give us the right rotation rate of the Earth and the compositional match without resorting to any subsequent process. Mm -hmm. so, uh, so in that sense, the current scenarios are more complex than the original notion of the impact uh, origin of the Moon. And the concern is whenever a model becomes more complex, whenever you add on additional processes that have to occur in order for uh, you to get a successful case, that what you're doing implicitly is you're reducing the probability that that event occurred. Because you, you have some probability that the impact occurred, and then there's some probability that equilibration occurred, for example, and those probabilities are less than 100%. And if you need both of those to occur, then the probability of the total scenario is the product of those probabilities. Yeah, so it's almost like the Drake equation, where you have you know, the number of stars with planets in the galaxy, the number of planets that then could support life, the number uh, of uh, planets on which life could arise, and then the number that would survive the technological age, and you just keep decreasing and decreasing and decreasing and decreasing the end number of, or the end chance that you're actually going to get the situation to happen. Right, and in addition to, in addition to the overall scenario being less probable, you also worry that it, you also worry that it may not be unique. So, um, so right now, what what the focus is is to look at the various parts of these scenarios: uh, the impact itself, uh, the equilibration mechanism, uh, the evection resonance, to try to determine uh, the probabilities of these various parts, and then ultimately the probabilities of the, of their combination that's needed, and uh, to look at whether 
any of the different scenarios that are currently proposed would have different implications for some observable uh, trait of the moon that could help us distinguish between them or perhaps rule one or more out entirely. And in this sense, there are many other important compositional relationships between the moon and the earth uh, beyond just oxygen. And for example, in the new impacts that produce uh, a good compositional match in the disk but leave the earth rotating uh, with a two and a half hour day with too fast of a day, unless it's reduced with the evection resonance, those new impacts are very high energy. And so the disk that they produce around the earth is almost entirely vaporized silicate. Whereas the models that uh, get the spin rate of the earth correct, but have a compositional mismatch initially with the earth, those models tend to produce a disk that's mostly molten rock initially. And so for example, those two very different states for the disk may have different implications for the moon's initial volatile abundance, or perhaps other um, isotopic relationships between the Earth and the Moon. Hmm. And so in addition to trying to assess the probabilities of all of these different um, events, people are trying to, uh, to poke and prod at these models to see what the implications of each one would be and whether it's consistent or not consistent with the Moon we see. So how do you see this science progressing in the next decade or so? Uh, you've you pretty much named the really big question now is really trying to figure out from the constraints of the composition how we can answer those with uh, the models, but then you also mentioned that we're also looking for more observational data in order to try to constrain the various models. So I guess what are, if I could simplify it effectively, what are the big questions, simulations, and or observations that really need to be made in the next say, decade or so in order to advance the field? Well, it's interesting because we just held a meeting, uh, a Royal Society meeting in London uh, last week on the origin of the moon. And there's a meeting devoted to just this topic that occurs about every 15 years. Mm -hmm. And what emerged from this meeting was that one of the key pieces of information that we need to make progress on the origin of the Earth and moon actually doesn't come from either the Earth or the Moon, ironically. And it was, it was pointed out by multiple people independently that what we'd really like to know is the oxygen composition of Venus. So oh. here's why. We don't actually know the oxygen composition of Venus. When you say oxygen composition, you're talking about the, abund the relative abundances of oxygen 16, 17, 18, that kind of thing? Exactly. It's the, it's the isotopic composition okay. of the planet that seems to be like a fingerprint uh, for each planet. We don't know this for Venus, but if we, if we learned the oxygen isotope composition of Venus and we discovered that it was very similar to that of the Earth and Moon, the whole argument that I've just described uh, that we have a, a compositional failure of the traditional impact model would be fundamentally altered. Because if, if we learned that Venus, a planet almost as massive as the Earth, had grown and acquired an oxygen composition equal to that of the Earth, well then 
it would be it would be reasonable and perhaps even probable that the impactor had had the same oxygen isotope composition as the target Earth. And Mars would then be the outlier. Hmm. So it would... On the other hand, if we learn the oxygen isotope composition of Venus, and it is as dissimilar from the Earth and Moon as from Mars, then we would be much more certain that uh, the impactor would never have the same composition as the target, and um, uh, we would know that we would have to um, have a solution to that compositional issue. So one of the key things that came out of that meeting was that, uh, you know, we need the data point from Venus. We have many data points from meteorites and their oxygen isotope composition, but the, the entire uh, class of meteorites represents only a very small fraction of the Earth's mass. And even Mars, as a data point, is a planet that's small compared to the Earth. It only has about 10% of the Earth's mass. But Venus is the closest we have to a twin of the Earth. And so understanding what its oxygen isotope composition is, is critical to, um, to these arguments uh, that will allow us to unravel the origin of the Earth and Moon. And the only way to do that is really by getting uh, a lander there, right, with a mass spectrometer? Well, it seems like uh, uh, there's a couple approaches. Um, it may be possible to get at this measurement uh, remotely through uh, looking at uh, CO2 transition lines, which are sensitive to the oxygen isotope composition. It's a very challenging uh, measurement, but it's possible. Alternatively, uh, what you'd like to do is in situ measurements. Um, they could be done at the surface, although, of course, that's very challenging, mm -hmm. having uh, any substantial lifetime to things that you, you land on Venus. Uh, you may be able to do them uh, within the atmosphere. You may not have to be down at the surface. Uh, but hopefully, this is going to be a central uh, scientific uh, objective um, of uh, a future Venus mission. And um, it seems like, as you look across the solar system, in my opinion, uh, Venus has been neglected of late in terms of our, um, our exploration uh, plans. And so hopefully, uh, we'll be going back there, and this will be one of the key scientific measurements that will be made. Okay. Uh, is there anything else that uh, you folks identified at the meeting as outstanding uh, observations or modeling that needs to be done? Well, there are, there are lots of um, primarily modeling efforts that are taking place to better quantify uh, the equilibration and evection resonance processes and the likelihood of these various types of impacts that are proposed. But one thing we've, uh, we from the dynamical side of things asked the geochemist is whether or not they can even better constrain how similar the Earth and Moon are in terms of oxygen. Right now, there is no difference between them compositionally that has been resolved. Okay. But if you can increase the precision of those measurements, for example, if we could if we could know uh, to a factor of, you know, f with a factor of five greater precision, how similar the Earth and Moon are in terms of oxygen, then that's also a very powerful constraint on the impact models, and it would start to uh, perhaps rule out some of them. Uh, so that's another um, uh, measurement that um, hopefully will take place and that was talked about last week at the meeting. 
So it's sort of like saying, uh, just to use round numbers, like Earth has uh, an oxygen isotope, um, the ratio is 1.0 and the moon is 1.0. What you want is for them to say, okay, well, Earth is actually 1.0012 and the moon is 0.9953. Exactly, exactly. And so essentially... Uh, by that analogy, if we could just get a cup, if we could just get one more decimal, if we could just get one more significant figure, if we could get one more decimal point out, that would be very uh, constraining on the models. Okay. Um, well, I've already taken up uh, over a half hour of your time. Um, is there anything else important that uh, you think that we've left out or that you want to say about, I guess, the current state of lunar formation science? No, I, I think. Uh, uh, I think that's it, the main points. All right. Well, in that case, uh, I will thank you very much for your time. I know that you're incredibly busy. Um, and I will see you at Suri later. <laughs> okay, great. Thank you. Thank you. topic for the 89th edition of the Exposing Pseudo-Astronomy podcast. Thank you for listening, and I hope that you enjoyed it and learned a little at the same time. For more information about this podcast, please visit the website at podcast.sjrdesign.net. If you have any feedback, please use the feedback form on the website or send an email directly to podcast at sjrdesign.net. You can also leave a comment on the page for this episode on the website, on the blog post for the episode, or on the Facebook page for the podcast. You can also tweet me, at PseudoAstro. I do read every message and appreciate the feedback. If you have suggestions for topics, please feel free to make them. Also, please write a review and rate this podcast on any of the numerous places where you can do so, but especially iTunes. After all, every single rating and every single review, even if it's in the negatory, does increase the visibility of the podcast, and visibility is always good for something like this.